you know, what I said was, look, we're not going to go full in native on any of the clouds that we're touching. You know, they all have rich services that are proprietary to that cloud platform. We said, look, our platform service was oriented to portability across those clouds, including our own private cloud that was part of the hybrid. Welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast, where we talk about what's working, what's not, and what's next. I'm Eden Porter de Leon. FedEx is an $87 billion business with over 560,000 team members around the world. At that scale, how does Rob Carter, FedEx CIO, approach business agility to stay ahead of the curve? In this episode, I speak with Rob Carter about what he has dubbed the dominant architecture, which allows industries to scale and has proven throughout history to increase global value creation exponentially. For technology leaders, this dominant architecture is now comprised of critical technologies like multi-cloud, containerized modern applications, AI-enabled edge computing, and soon blockchain. It is these technologies and a shifting mindset that allows distributed teams to leverage them effectively that is the driving force behind the next wave of innovation. Rob, these are interesting times that we're living in right now, and it's not something that we're, we're looking backwards anymore. We're looking forwards anymore, and there's optimism, there's excitement about what opportunities and possibilities that we have in order to sort of tackle some of the challenges that seemed almost intractable months ago. And sort of with that in mind, when you're thinking about, you know, sort of lofty things like, you know, technology and innovation and, you know, and the global changing dynamics that are moving forward, I mean, the sort of the population of the planet is sort of grappling with sort of getting its footing right now. What's that sort of technology sort of perspective that you have sort of when it comes to what's that next step in innovation? I think the reality of the current situation is we all got slingshot into the future by at least four or five years. You know, many of the trends that we're working through, including, you know, massive e-commerce volumes and, you know, a more connected world, both virtually and physically, were coming at us. They were just coming at us slower than what happened as we entered the pandemic. And so, you know, we sit in this really interesting place, the nexus between the physical world and the digital world. So the physical networks are humming at incredible velocity right now, trying to keep up with the demand that's been generated. And so we had built and continue to build capabilities that match that kind of demand. But we thought we would be where we are now in you know, 2025 or 2026. And meanwhile, the physical networks, as we all know around the world, are very stressed because there was only so much capacity and the capacity has been really taken to the limits across all forms of supply chain. But it, it gave us a really strong sense of purpose. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's one interesting thing that, that fascinates me too, is that sort of constraint. There was sort of this, this expansion, you know, as we were growing and then, and then there was this contraction and almost like someone turned the spigot off of, you know, of, you know, flow and commerce through. And then all of a sudden it came back through, you know, with a vengeance, with a huge force, but that there wasn't necessarily the same physical sort of capacity that there was before. And, and what was that? So now, now we're like right at this moment where we're kind of playing catch up, but also there's opportunity to sort of rethink and reimagine what that new approach is to delivering on some of those capabilities that we did before. And, and give me a sense of sort of what you're thinking is that opportunity and, and what your approach is to, to the way in which we can you know, start to, to, to address that. Well, frankly, when, when this all hit, 
you know, there was no way to fake it. You were, you were either prepared, you know, from a technology standpoint to deal with the kind of new needs that the world was expressing, or you weren't. You couldn't just craft new things. So the strategies that we'd been working on really came into play. We'd been expecting an explosion in e-commerce. We'd been expecting healthcare, you know, to become a much more critical kind of point-to-point set of services. And so capabilities like those were part of the arsenal. But the underlying technology that was so critical to that was the ability to scale it. So, you know, when the explosion happened, I mean, literally hundreds of kilotons of PPE shipped around the world, you know, hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines that had very critical timeframes that they had to be delivered in and temperature controls. You know, all of those capabilities were in place, but they had to scale and they had to scale based on modern technology because the vertical technology of the past, the sort of, you know, big processor technology that uh, legacy systems are built on only scales so far. And so what we had done over the decade leading up to this was we had toppled all that onto its side. We Everything we were doing to support this was horizontal scale-out technology that, that really could be multiplied simply by you know putting more of it in place, spinning more of it up. Yeah, no, I love that you put that in the perspective of scale, and I want to dig in a little bit because it's the 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 sort of the the pieces, the components of that really sort of fascinate me, and 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 how you sort of created that ability to have that scale, and also I want to sort of talk about everything from innovating and platforming on sort of uh, maybe a multi-cloud architecture and then rolling all the way to, you know, to modernizing those apps on that platform to all the way to the edge, which of course is where the, the rubber literally meets the road for you is, you know, is, could you talk about where you are now and sort of where you see that moving forward is, are you in multiple clouds? Has that helped with scalability? How does that translate into the way that you build applications and how does that, how does that reach the edge? You know, just all of that, Rob, just all that. We, we have an intensely hybrid environment. It's hybrid multi-cloud with a lot of edge. You know, so, you know, just to, you know, use the same terms and throw it back at you, it's a huge part of the architecture that we had built. But, you know, I got to say that, you know, this is, this is what I call dominant design. So we recognized right around 2009 or 10 that there was a new dominant design in technology, that the technologies that enterprise companies had used to get them that far weren't going to be able to compete and deal with the world that was emerging. And here's what I mean by that. So the odds in 2010 of a startup who might want to compete with us on a data-oriented and digital you know, framework the odds of them using a mainframe computer as any part of their estate was exactly zero. You know, there was no chance that... I can imagine that VC funding conversation would be really, really difficult. It's like, how are you going to do this? What's your scale? We're going to use a mainframe. <laughs> yeah, but it's still a real deal in enterprise computing today. People are still dealing with these kind of monoliths that are out there that are entirely different than scale out cloud native technologies. And, you know, frankly, VMware was a huge part of this because we were at this nexus where we were having to say, okay, we, we've got to expand data center capacity. We've got to do some things 
all these applications that ran kind of standalone were going to take a lot of space. And it dawned on us and on me at that point in time that the dominant design technologies were all scale out, highly virtualized technologies. So that was the first part of the journey was topple all those monoliths and put them, you know, replatform them on cloud-native scale-out technologies, but do that in a hybrid way. The first generations of that were pretty close to all in our data centers, you know, so we were just replacing, you know, these kind of big, big uniprocessor things with scale-out x86 technology that was highly virtualized. Let me pull on a couple of threads there too, because I think it's a, it sounds it sounds really fantastic. I mean, it's it's where I think a lot of a lot of technology leaders want to go, but there is you know as you were well aware since you went through it, there's a lot of real challenges with that. Let's say like great, we're going to be hybrid, we're going to scale across different clouds, you know, and the data center. But then there's well, how do you then manage these sort of heterogeneous environments that may not necessarily talk to each other? Is there a way to work across them? Is there a way to secure across them? Maybe you could sort of talk about how how you wrapped your head around and how you got your team and rallied your team around that piece. I definitely believe that the world that we were emerging from, where technology had accumulated, you know, across, you know, several decades of innovation and pressing the envelope with technology, frankly, I think it was intensely more complex than the clean nature of what I would call API-first, cloud-native, service-oriented capabilities where you were building modular, durable assets that were reusable, that formed specific functions rather than deep vertical applications that were out there. So many things had become more common rather than less as the cloud era emerged. And so we were able to build some technical tenants. We were able to communicate them very effectively to the team you know, that said, look, these are the drivers of where we're going. And we built a shared mental model you know, around exactly what that systems model would look like as we went forward. And it was applicable in our data centers. It was applicable in cloud deployed technology, and it was also applicable at the edge. So as as you think of those three things, we built out a strategy that said, look, we're, you know, we're going to straddle we're going to straddle between our owned and premise-based technology and cloud technology, but we're going to do it in a way using containerization and other common design elements where, frankly, you can use it in either place and use it effectively and deploy it effectively and orchestrate it and provision it in ways that are rapid and simple compared to, you know, kind of standing it up uniquely time and time again as we had done in the past. Yeah, so it sounds like it was just a big change in mindset and the way that you approached the problem rather than, like you said, standalone, monolithic. Uh, and this has sort of been a theme that's gone throughout the decades. But is now, right now, a time where certain pieces of technology have come together, certain talents have come together, and certain catalysts within the marketplace have come together for you to accelerate that moving forward? And do you feel like that path of scalability, acceleration, mind shift, do you feel like that path is now more open than it was, sort of less free of, you know, of hurdles than it was? Or do you feel like there's a complexity, there's still, you know, a, 
tough challenges of security, of management. What does that sort of road look like that you're on? Yeah, it never gets easy. That is that for sure. But I I feel like I almost have to do a little more justice to this dominant design concept because it's such a critical thing. And I don't hear a lot of engineers talk about it, but almost any technology you can think of, whether it was automobiles or electricity or the rail, the rail is one of the easiest ones to think of because, you know, in, in the middle of of the 19th century, there were nine different gauges of rail around the country. They were all owned and they were specific to the Illinois Central and the Southern, you know, and the and the Burlington and the Northern, and they had different gauges of rail. And then ultimately they all centered on a common gauge of the rail, four foot, eight and a half inches. If you go out any rail in the US and stretch a tape on it, you'll see center to center on the rails, it's four foot, eight and a half inches. Well, that allowed this explosion of commerce and industry because you no longer had to stop, you know, and unload and offload at these at these juncture points. I think that's very much like the place that technology was as it had emerged on so many different platforms with so many different proprietary frameworks for deploying networks and storage and compute. And then along with the the cloud era and the service orientation that came with apps and capabilities, we saw this gravity to a common gauge of the railroad. Well, I tell you, if you don't jump on to the common gauge of the railroad, the result is that there's tumbleweeds rolling down Main Street. You know, I mean, you gotta, you, you have to jump. And so what we recognized and what, you know, what I hope, you know, many of my peers will get really anxious about is that if you're not building and moving as fast as you can towards the dominant designs of technology that exist in cloud today, which, which by the way, span you know different public cloud implementations. I mean, it's all the same at its fundamental you know baseline level. So, so that's what we did. We jumped on the new gauge of the railroad and we moved quickly, recognizing that standing still was simply not an option. Yeah, no, it fascinates that dominant design uh, idea fascinates me because it does, and I love I love the the railroad analogy because it really was a huge barrier. And from a technology standpoint, there definitely sort of this feeling that there are you know different technologies still sort of vying for dominance, and you have like you know this wonderful sort of evolutions by like TCP/IP, x86, all these things sort of came along and just revolutionized and put everyone on the same platform. Now, now that you have you know the dominant platform, what do you for some it's still murky because you still feel like there's this sort of evolving, evolving technology landscape, but there is convergence. There is, like you said, there is dominant. And where where are you seeing sort of the core pieces of that sort of dominant design that people should be, it's, you know, one is sort of public cloud, multi-cloud hybrid, because you're moving fast. Like you said, you're moving fast towards that. And where do you see, do you see it evolving right now? And do you see another component of that dominant design emerging and that you feel like you're going towards or running towards or, or building towards? Well, there's no crystal ball that says exactly where technology is going to be or going to land. But it's it's really important to recognize that your goal isn't to be perfect and make perfect choices. It's to be less wrong every day. You know, and so... so I like that perspective because <laughs> that's like when you take the bar as a lawyer, there, there's questions that say, what's the least wrong answer? <laughs> and that's almost kind of like what the, the, your conundrum as well as a technologist, like what's what's going to be the least wrong or what's going to be the most right? You know, having that shared mental model that I described earlier that was based on these technical tenets that were saying, look, 
everything's going to be API first. Everything's going to be services and microservices. The more granular and, and coarse grain that we can make the capabilities that support our business. Look, our business is shipping, it's address, it's label, it's rate, it's route, it's you know, it's fundamental services, not giant vertical applications that mash all that together and tangle it up. But that was what all, you know, of the first generations of technology did. They built big vertical applications. We had to decompose those into durable assets that could be repositioned and reused in multiple applications. You know, address was a great example. Over time, we had collected address you know, in in many, many systems that were out there that were running the estate, what we did in the modernization work was we said, look, address, address is a service. Address is a fundamental thing. So we built a core foundational service, and this is a big coarse grain service, enterprise foundational service called address. And all applications now pointed to the same address engine made for a more consistent customer experience. It made for a, you know, just a, a more efficient way of delivering and checking the validity of addresses, changing addresses, knowing where things are. That's just one example of us saying, look, the, the future is going to be about capabilities, which, you know, kind of relate to apps, you know, as opposed to applications, which are giant mashups. No, I like that. The, the couple different things there. One is the services piece, and one is the app versus application. It's almost just a way of sort of a, a nomenclature and a sort of a nod to the fact that this is not going to be monolithic. This is actually going to be, um, this is going to be sort of like a service. This is going to be durable. This is going to be portable, and I think that's a a really interesting way to look at building applications. And so when you start to think about this, isn't just like, hey, let's containerize things, you know, for agility. It's like, well, what does that actually even mean? But let's take actually something real. Let's take something that's really core to the business and let's create a service out of it. And well, how do we create a service out of it? Well, then containers is a tool, then multi-cloud is a tool. And then, and then maybe you could speak to sort of how that sort of durability and that portability works from, you know, across clouds, like some organizations are like, why do I have to be in more than one cloud? Why can't I be in one? And then how does that help the way, you know, how does more than one cloud help the way that I build applications and their portability and durability? And then how does that translate to connecting that sort of scalability to the edge where, you know, where a lot of activity happens in your world? Well, in this was kind of controversial on my team. And, you know, what I said was, look, we're not going to go full in native on any of the clouds that we're touching. You know, they all have rich services that are proprietary to that cloud platform. But, you know, frankly, this is how we became so involved in Pivotal and PCF. You know, we said, look, our platform service, and then ultimately PKS, was oriented to portability across those clouds, including our own private cloud that was part of the hybrid. So the ability to use PCF as a platform service and not overreach and overstep into every native service that was offered on every cloud, because that's how you get lock-in. And I've been a technologist for a long time, and lock-in is every supplier's favorite game. You know, as if I if I can make it sticky, then you then you got to keep using it. And so, my least favorite thing in my entire career, you know, across these, you know, you know, now approaching forty years, is you know, 
ripping something off of an old platform and doing all of that work just to get it repositioned on, on another platform. And because you're generally not adding business value at all when you do that. And so my team, you know, loved some of those services. They were some of the best services ever designed for technologists. But we said, look, we're gonna we're gonna abstract our way off of the very detailed services that the cloud providers offer. Uh, no, that's uh, that that I feel like is one key component of one of the things a lot of technologists are doing looking forward is figuring out what is that way forward without getting that lock in? What is that way forward with, you know, gaining the sort of these of portability and durability that they're looking for? Um, but then one of the things I think that we touched on earlier, which is what's that challenge that then stops organizations from doing kind of what you're doing at full speed, things like the security, things like the manageability. I'm sort of developing on these different platforms, but I don't have one way for you know my CI/CD pipeline to be able to deploy onto this cloud and then have it move to that cloud and, and, and platforming for that type of flexibility like you just talked about seems like one way to start addressing that. Platforming for you know for innovation for portability for durability seems like that's that that layer that allows you to sort of be cloud agnostic to be you know sort of you know environment agnostic and just develop in one place, deploy in one place and have those applications exist. And what's sort of what's that is that part of that dominant design? Is that part of where like organizations should be moving towards? Well, I, I do think it's it's an emerging part of dominant design, and Kubernetes is kind of at the core of it. And whether it's Tanzu or PKS or whatever instantiation of container, you know, that companies are using, it's it's what really allows portability. But the main answer to your question is, you know, twofold for me. One is organizations underestimate. And I'm talking about the business and technology. They underestimate the risk of standing still. So there's there's not this burning sense of urgency because the stuff they have kind of works, you know. I mean, they may have deluded themselves into saying, well, you know, and it's, and it's really hard and expensive to, you know, to shift all this architecture. And humans are creatures of habit, and that extends through lines of business leaders, that extends to all of those different pieces. And that that organizational momentum is real. The struggle is real. You're pushed. You got to push against that. And the the opposite of underestimating the risk of standing still because that's like standing on a beach not knowing there's a looming tsunami getting ready to sweep over the beach but on the other side of the equation they overestimate the risk of moving forward you know i mean it's like well that's you know that's expensive that takes too much time it's you know it's you know fraught with peril it's going to take all these you know in you know you know, in scope socks applications, and we're going to have to retest. You know, I mean, I, you know, there's all these machinations that go on in everyone's head, business and technology, about the risks of moving forward. And I, you know, we've worked really hard to recalibrate those risks. You know, to really kind of paint a picture for the business. Look, it is very risky for us to stand still. And while there may be bumps in the road as we move forward, it's less risky to do that than it is to wait for annihilation. No, I like the framing of that too, because it is, it's that, that duality of underestimating the risks of standing still and overestimating the risks of moving forward and, and change, because I know we're all change versus, you know, as, as human beings. And the second part of it is, is that, you know, we just have a fantastic team. And so, you know, once we were able to sort of create a little contagion around, you know, around these modern technologies, um, we've got a team of, of folks 
you know, that just really thrive on, on architecting and building. So, so architecture matters a lot. And you can't just have an accidental architecture. You have to be purposeful in that. So all these notions about these technical tenets and the design of services and, the, you know, the componentization and platforming, you know, of all these capabilities came out of the minds of, you know, of our great team and architects. And we documented it, we drew it, we, you know, we put it out to the teams. And, you know, and, and that created change energy by the teams. People wanted to be doing that work and not just kind of stuck with, uh, with the things they had been doing. Nice, because I think that is that speaks to another piece, which is inspiring, you know, create the best people to do their best work. And that's one of the fuel for that forward motion and is attracting that talent and retaining that talent and bringing everyone together. So I think it's it's great that it's, it's sort of, you know, this virtuous circle where you're not only doing the great work, but you're also attracting people and retaining people to continue to do even more great work. And so sort of looking forward to sort of now you've sort of got this inspired team looking forward at some of the challenges that sort of are faced in the future. You've got supply chain issues right now. There's, you know, there's definitely we're at a unique point um, from from a sort of a global sort of commerce perspective. How are you sort of looking at that opportunity? Like you said, you're not standing on the beach waiting for that tsunami. It's like you were already moving forward. So part of part of the work that you've done already was was in anticipation of sort of situations like this, sort of explosions of commerce. How is that sort of the way that you're approaching things moving forward to address some of the supply chain issues, to sort of tackle some of those new challenges that that everyone's facing? You know, it's fundamentally what I would call digital density and optimization. So the networks of the world, you know, ours and everyone else's are finite resources. You can push as much in there but as soon as it, they start to get backed up, there are huge challenges getting them, you know, moving again. I think everybody can see that, particularly in the ports these days and, you know, just the challenges with that. But with AI and with great analytics and with all kinds of work around route optimization, you know, I mean, being able to see early on the shipments that were moving into the network, having, you know, the big e-tailers give us immediate visibility to the things they were going to hand us long before, it, not long before, but, you know, I mean, hours before it even hits the first vehicle that we have allows us to then plan, you know, optimal routes, plan downstream, create digital density because we can utilize analytics to create more efficient routes you know, better ways of handling things because things move through our network at different speed. There's healthcare and vaccine, you know, shipments that move absolutely positively on the express air freighter network, you know, and, and have incredibly high need for time sensitive deliveries. We put IoT sensors on those devices that allow us to watch them as they move, not just scan them at, at particular points, but literally watch them as they move through the network and all the way to the end point of delivery. But there are other things that can be slowed down. And so those out, it's not simple. It's a complex set of algorithms that say, okay, we can afford for this to move slower because it's got to make room for these high priority items, healthcare and, you know, and other critical supply chain items. And so our networks aren't as as clogged up as, you know, the things that everybody is seeing at the ports and things like that, because we 
we have fast cycle logistics in everything that we do. Now we're having some challenges because there's so much volume hitting the network. The more clogged up the slow networks get, the more people rely on our network. And it's really hard for us to put a sold out sign up. <laughs> yeah. So this is the big question everyone's asking. So Rob, is there is there going to be Christmas this year? Is Christmas coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's going to be challenging. I don't, I don't want to paint, you know, some kind of rose colored picture of it. There are many things that are at the ports in, in some form of transit that are, that are stuck and that's going to cause shortages. We can all see that when we, you know, whether we go online or walk into a store, but the things that are moving, you know, from those final distribution points, you know, out to, out to the consumers that need them. I mean, you know, most of us are still seeing quite a bit of, of that working as it's supposed to. Yes, there are on the margin, there are more problems and more challenges, including, you know, in our network than there normally are because there's just too much capacity and not enough, I mean, too much demand and, and the capacity, including the labor challenges that we and everybody else have had, you know, make it difficult to handle all of that demand. Yeah, I know. And a couple of different things that you had mentioned, I think, were, were key in that, that that I get excited about when you talk about AI and you talk about the algorithms and you talk about, well, some things can be slower, some things need to go a little bit faster. Could you explain sort of how is that sort of, because that is really, that is their story. Like AI is sort of a layer where you take from the edge all the way to the cloud and then back again, all the way through sort of the applications, you know, that you were talking about earlier too. So if you could explain you sort of how you, how much, how much inference like happens at the edge versus what what needs to go to the cloud and then come back? Some things like, you know, you know, something moving through, like you said, these scanners, these trackers and these IoT components that are moving through the network and being tracked in real time, they can't necessarily do inference out there, or sometimes they can't wait for the cloud to come back and give them an answer. Where does thou, those things balance from the cloud through your apps to, to the edge pieces? Yeah, let's do talk about edge a little bit because we have, you know, there's so many things emerging on the edge for us right now. We have, you know, these, these huge sort facilities that we have, have, 10, 15 milliseconds to make sort decisions, you know, which is really fast, you know I mean? Wow. That, yes, that is, it's quick. So, so imagine belts moving it, you know, between four and 600 feet per minute, you know, stuff's flying through these, you know, six-sided scan tunnels. And immediately after it goes through, there are sort decisions that are, that are being made based on, based on that. Well, that takes localized compute. And so edge, you know, high performance edge computing out at these big facilities, and not just to support that, but also to support, as you mentioned, the IoT devices, the sensors that are out there are producing a thousand times more inputs than the scans were in the past. So, you know, a scan at a, a waypoint, you know, is one piece of data. And I'm not talking about RFID sensors, I'm talking about broadcast sensors, ones that can be pinged that, you know, that have their own ability to communicate in the facilities through the Wi-Fi. You know, they're not being interrogated like an RFID antenna. They're battery-powered sensors that are sending out information. That creates an incredible amount of data. And that was a you know a, an edge point where that data had to be curated at the edge, simplified, and then sent up to the cloud. So that shows a piece of connectivity. But that was a that was a significant, you know, Ponzu, you know, kind of application there where we had deployed some of that all the way to the edge, but then created, you know, the the central processing capability in the cloud 
to be able to keep track of and interrogate exactly what's going on with those shipments. So, gosh, it's it's pretty complex, you know, and, and I hope I'm not, you know, just kind of spewing it. But, you know, and then comes autonomous vehicles. We have a lot of autonomy beginning getting ready to happen out on the edge with the same day bot and, you know, little tuggers and things that move around these facilities that are that are. I've seen those. Those are pretty cute. Well, I think they're going to be, I think they're really going to be impactful in the world because, you know, you think of, you know, a, a 3,000 pound car and a human being, you know, bringing you your your pizza, you know, it's not green, it's not efficient, it's it's not economical. There are a lot of things to that. But these these little bots, if you think of them as being dispatched from that very same pizza place, they can hit the neighborhood in a five mile radius, do it very efficiently and just call you when they're out front and you go out and get that's, I think that's just fascinating because it's like there's there's interesting like where we talked about emerging technologies and sort of first applications for a lot of these like you know for robots and AI and, and some circumstances you realize okay well the first you know maybe big application for you know AI and voice recognition you know is Alexa playing me the music I want so that's a DJ and then like the Roomba like you know you know uh, you know you know uh, vacuuming our floors like the first robot you know lasers were exciting like what do we do them we use them for grocery scanning and so now it's like the, these robots it's I mean having pizza delivery it seems like something that you. Know, you know, that that is, you know, sort of maybe benign and something that we used to be like, kind of like used to like, oh, no, a human gets in a car and then they put a pizza in a trunk and then they bring it to us. Like, well, no, why why wouldn't we have sort of an autonomous vehicle create that experience instead of, you know, having somebody physically get, you know, sort of in a car and, and grab something and put it in our hands. And, and that sort of then translates to a whole host of other things. So where do you, where do you see sort of, sort of as that last look forward, where do you see some of those other emerging technologies having a place, things like you've talked about previously, like blockchain, having a place in the way that not just the way that you do things from, you know, from IoT to edge to, to the cloud, but how other companies can start to look at these things, how, you know, how you just explain how AI can go to the edge and back and then, and then create sort of a lot, handle that volume of data, handle those, those tiny little split second decisions. Do you feel like blockchain and others pieces need to sort of CIOs and tech leaders need to look at those and start to think about how that needs to be integrated into their environments? Well, blockchain is clearly something that has a huge relevancy to supply chains. So, you know, we were essentially the inventors of custody chains, you know, custody chains that, you know, from the point where we first, you know, took a package into our custody at the pickup through the network, you know, many different, you know, waypoints, and then the proof of delivery when we dropped it off, you know, at your, at your doorstep or at the business or at the hospital, you know, that was a custody chain. And when you track a package, you can see that custody chain in action. Well, blockchain in supply chains really has potential to go way beyond that. It has potential to go all the way back to points of production, the provenance of things. You think about pharma is a great way to think about it. Well, how do we know that the pharma that's moving through the supply chain is authentic? How do we know its provenance, where it was made, when it was made? What are the kinds of things that can create a custody chain throughout throughout its life cycle until, you know, you're at home and, and, and needing it and using it. And so, you know, that's just one example, but organic foods and, you know, and high value, you know, luxury goods that are knocked off left and right. You know, I mean, how do you, how do you know that that watch or that bag is real without some sort of custody chain. Trust is like a huge, and, and maybe this, you know, this too, I don't know if you see this as trust, almost trust as a service, like trust is one of the most 
powerful and most valuable resources. And you see this as being a, a blockchain, potentially creating trust as, as a service. That's a brilliant way to say it. it really is because it is, it is about trust. It's about saying, okay, I can trust this because it's also immutable. You know, it's not something you can go in and yes. change, you know, once, you know, once those, those chains have begun, but, but here's, you know, here's where we come into the blockchain space with a completely open framework in mind. That can't be a FedEx blockchain. That's not meaningful to the world. What it has to be is an open blockchain for critical um, participants to go in and, and update the points of entry that create the movement of that blockchain through handoffs and through lifecycle in, in ways that you simply can't do you know, using, you know, tracking systems like ours or EDI or something like that. That, that might be, Rob, that might be the next uh, standard railroad road gauge is that uh, open blockchain well, we, <laughs> for trust. We, we don't often spend a lot of time saying we think things should be regulated, but we spend a lot of time with U.S. Customs and Border Protection saying blockchain is the answer to some of the battles that you're fighting. Blockchain would allow you to you know, keep fentanyl out and blockchain would allow you to, you know, keep fakes from, you know, and even deep fakes from working their way into retail systems. And so we have their attention on this. And we think that there's probably a regulatory move afoot that uses blockchains to be that, you know, kind of authoritative border crossing information that allows you to get just more accurate information about what's exactly crossing the borders all around the world. No, I think that's a phenomenal opportunity. And I'm personally too fascinated with blockchain and distributed ledger technologies as it's referred to in other, in other venues and really see a lot of potential there. Also see a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of technical challenges like everything like that's come, you know, to the fore. At this point, though, I think we're kind of coming to a point where we like to sort of wrap things up and sort of distill things down to sort of have a way in which we could sort of say, this is some of the perspectives that we have, and this is how we're sort of going to talk about them to sort of those who are listening and those who want to go back to their, you know, e-staffs and, and other team members. So we have this sort of segment of take it to the board. In short, ladies and gentlemen of the board, costs are down, revenues are up, and our stock has never been higher. So when you're looking at dominant design, I think some great pillars of the conversation, dominant design, we're looking at the risks of standing still versus the risks of moving forward and looking at sort of what's the next emerging component of sort of that dominant design, whether it's emerging technologies. How do you sort of recommend others sort of take that conversation to the board and then convince them that this is the way to move forward, that we can do it securely, that we can do it in a way that services the business, that we can do it in a not non-disruptive way, but minimally, minimally disruptive way. How, how would you sort of frame that board conversation? Well, storytelling is incredibly important and something that's underestimated in our profession. You know, we think that we can just kind of toe the line of, you know, saying here's the technology and here's how much it's going to cost. And that just doesn't work. All in the middle of what you just described is something that I call ugly pictures, and so one of the things that we don't do a very good job of is showing the reality of what we're trying to get our arms around with our own legacy estates today. So all of this journey started with a really ugly picture of complexity and interfaces and slowness in delivering value for the business with increasing complexity, creating incre increasing cost and slowness. 
And so those ugly pictures were something I shared with the board. I put them right up there and said, look, this isn't going to get better unless we bend the curve, unless we engineer our way out of this, unless we decompose what was fundamentally an accidental architecture. It had happened over decades. There was a collection of things that had you know, piled up into a big heap because technology had emerged over those decades and we were always deploying technology, utilizing it for advantage, but it had gotten too complex. And I wasn't afraid to show that you know, even if they said, well, that's your fault as well. You know, you know, in fact, you know, Fred called that picture, our, our CEO called that picture Hurricane Rob. You know, I mean, because I, <laughs> I, I drew this, you know, I had the team draw this map of all the systems and all the complexity, all the hotspots. And it looked like Katrina, you know, coming on shore. You know, I mean, it was it was intense. And so that woke up the imaginations of the board and the senior executives and said, you know, look, this is a high risk thing. If we just keep piling on to that as opposed to engineering our way out of it, which wasn't cheap or easy, but it was less risky than just believing we could just sort of nurture the existing thing and, and make it work for us in a future that was clearly on a different dominant design path than all of that stuff. That's a, a beautiful way to sort of architect that. I like that accidental architecture, accidentally multi-cloud, accidentally all these different things too, because it was it's sort of the momentum. And I think that's a I think that's a fascinating way to sort of portray it as uh, as not being afraid to sort of open up sort of the you know the the doors of you know the data center and the architecture and say, no, look at this is this is what we're doing right now. Uh, and we've always done it this way, or we've maybe started to shift a little bit, but we need to shift faster. And that may be some of the conversations too, is yes, we're starting to move, but we're not moving fast enough in the right direction and still going to get us into a place where we're going to be at a very, very risky component too. And sort of what would that last sort of piece of advice to sort of those listening to from a storytelling perspective, because as a storyteller, I, I love that analogy. How do they tell that story and is it that way where they really sort of take shed that fear and then show everyone, you know, what it's like? Show them that ugly picture. Is that sort of is that the story that everyone needs to to tell? Yeah, you know, I, I think that that new generations of it are, you know, are still emerging. And and I, I still love to tell those kinds of stories. You know, I mean, and reach you know, I literally showed the board you know, sort of the evolution of the gauge of the railroad and the evolution of the electrical plugs in the wall. I said, they didn't all used to look like that. You know, I mean, there was a big battle as electricity emerged and plugs in the wall were totally different current. I said, you know, dominant design took hold of it. And now we all just make the assumption it was always that way, that that plug or that jack or that rail or that road, you know, always worked that way. Well, the same thing is true for technology. It's just more nascent. You know, I mean, the technologies that we're talking about are, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old tops, and they're still evolving, but there's a clear path to dominant design that's out there now. Unlike, you know, the early days of mainframes and mini computers and, you know, so many different brands you could name that were, you know, all proprietary from the network and the operating system up. That's not true anymore. And you can tell that story. You just need to use context that's different than just the technology. Use context from history that says, hey, it's happening again right in front of our eyes. We need to be on the common gauge of the railroad, not where the tumbleweeds are going to be rolling down Main Street.
Nice. And that's one of the, the lessons that history teaches us to, to not repeat it, you know, just because it doesn't look exactly the same um, doesn't mean that it's not repeating. Actually, the people like to say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it it rhymes. Uh, and I think that's the case with a lot of different things. So Rob Carter, thank you so much for joining the CIO Exchange podcast. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Yudin. Thank you for listening to this latest episode. Please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more insights from technology leaders, as well as global research on key topics, visit vmware.com slash CIO.